Welcome to Bible study. Glad you're here. We're going to get going uh, with our Bible study tonight. So we'll start in prayer and then we'll see uh, what we have. So let's pray. Father, thanks for uh, this time, this place. We thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your revelation tonight. Pray that you would empower this time by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask you that we would just be ready and willing to receive all that you want to say and all that you want to do. I pray, God, that you would challenge us tonight. I ask you that we would accept the challenge and allow you to lead us to places of change and growth. I just ask you that this would be a time uh, where you speak, we hear you, and I pray, God, a creative work of your word. In, in our midst, a creative work of your word in our lives, a creative work of your word in your body here. Uh, we give you thanks for uh, just, just all that you do. We give you thanks for all that you speak. We give you thanks for all that you do in our lives in peace and rest and, and in joy. We give you thanks, God, for your provision over us. We give you thanks that uh, you're good in every way. So tonight, have your way. We ask God that we would be receptive open. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and I just want to give a little disclaimer as we're starting tonight. Uh, some fresh and warm meatloaf was delivered uh, to me uh, right before the meeting, and so I'm going to be snacking on that, so I apologize for any food and chewing sounds that would be on the recording. If you don't like that, skip this one. So, uh, Mark chapter 10. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that web page, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line, uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. Mark chapter 10, and I'm going to need a volunteer that will read verse 32. They were on their way to Jerusalem, and when Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to them. All right, thank you. Uh, this is a passage that, uh, out of the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark is one of, is with the Gospel that's really to the point. Uh, it's uh, one of the simplest, and straightforward, most straightforward of the Gospels. Uh, whenever uh, someone comes to know Jesus and want to know where to start, 
I usually tell them to start in Mark, only because it's just a, it's just straightforward. It's just this is what happened, this how it happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Uh, most people that, at least over the years that I've been in ministry, they try to start people in John. John's the most spiritual of all the Gospels, that's true, and it uh, has a lot of spiritual truth and insight in it, uh, but deep spiritual truth is not really something that I understood when I first came to know Jesus. I just wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know the story. And so that's why I start people in Mark. But uh, So Mark here is uh, telling a story, and we're going to refer to John because it gives a little more insight as to what was going on at this time and during this time frame in the ministry of Jesus where he was with his disciples. This would uh, be occurring uh, right after the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus had died, and he had gone to Jerusalem, or gone to uh, just outside of Jerusalem to raise him from the dead. And it was after the resurrection of Lazarus that the Jewish authorities resolved to put Jesus to death. Now, that's what had happened right afterwards, because uh, that was just too much. That was he was about to uh really increase his following. He was about to explode on the scene with a lot more power, a lot more influence. They could see that. I mean, people raising people from the dead. And and there were witnesses to it. People saw it. And so they decided that the best course of action was going to be to put him to death and instead of trying to contain this anymore. And so they had uh, offered a reward to people that would be willing to give information, turn him in. And so the Bible, we know that he withdrew himself um, to the wilderness or to a place where he could and then prepared himself for what laid ahead. And so it was in this time frame that final resolution was made on his part that he was going to go to the cross and so he fixed his purpose, he fixed his face toward Jerusalem and toward what God had for him, what the Father had for him. Uh, interestingly, I, I know we don't think of Jesus this way, but there's decision-making processes that he went through. And there were things that he had spoken of and things that he had said that would indicate that resolution needed to be made. Uh, like with any human being, if we're called to do something difficult, we need to make that decision. And we need to make that decision ahead of time if we can. Uh, I, I talk to people all the time, it's like, you need to know what you're going to do. Whatever the, the situation would be, it's like you're going to be find yourself in certain situations, you need to know what you're going to do. Uh, when we travel, uh, in missions work that we do, uh, we travel to certain places where things that we're doing are not smiled upon. Uh, some of the places that we travel to, they're not only not smiled upon, they're uh, illegal uh, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to uh, lead people to Jesus, pray with people in the name of Jesus, and there's things that we do. But we have to make our decisions, and I encourage people to make their decisions before they leave, that this is how we're going to live, this is what we're going to do, and not to try and make a decision in a moment, because uh, that's really difficult. Uh, there needs to be certain things resolved in us. There needs to be certain things resolved in our hearts, our minds, ahead of time, so that if we do face whatever that situation might be, that we're ready for it. And so Jesus withdrew. He made his resolutions. You see him uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane before 
the, he's arrested and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and we have an insight there where he's speaking to the Father, his Father, Heavenly Father. And he's asking him, he's like, if it be possible, can this cup pass from me? In other words, he was asking the Father, is there a different way we can do this? And I always found that really super interesting that he would ask that. It doesn't mean he didn't. It wasn't mean he wasn't going to go through with it. It didn't mean that he wasn't going to go to the cross. It doesn't mean that he he wasn't going to go about the work that God had called him to the Father had sent him for. That was that isn't what that meant. It just meant that he just asked. He said, "Is there a different way we can do this? Is it possible for this cup to pass from me?" And immediately he said, "But nevertheless, not my will." So what was his will? I don't want to do this. But yours be done. He, he had already resolved that. And it just shows us that there are certain decisions that were that we could be called to, that Jesus was definitely called to, and that he was leading the way into, giving us an example of, that we look at that and we think to ourselves, yeah, I don't want to do this, but nevertheless, not my will, God be done. And that's the resolution that we make. Uh, I, I don't expect that I'm, I'm going to necessarily change my mind about certain things that God may call me to. You, you know, Jesus, who wants to go to a cross? Who wants to die that kind of excruciating death that Jesus was about to face? Well, no one really chooses that. It, I mean, in the sense that, oh, I'd really like to do that. There's something wrong with someone who chooses that, like, I'd really like that. He's choosing the will of the Father over his own. And being willing to choose the will of the Father over our own is something that needs to take place ahead of time in our lives where we make that decision. Like, not my will, but His be done. And to find peace in that. To find peace in allowing for, there may be times where we don't want to do something, but we know it's something that the Father has, and we've already made the determination we're going to do what the Father has for us. Jesus led the way into that. He showed us the way to that. He shows what that looks like, what that actually is, and and how that's fleshed out. And so this is that process that he's in where he is making that determination ahead of time. He's to say, well, if the will of the Father is going to happen here, if the will of the Father is going to take place, and, uh, and he's making this determination that that's just how it's going to be. And so he makes a calm resolve that he's heading to the cross, to Jerusalem, and he's fixing his purpose. That The word uh, at the beginning of this verse says, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Uh, literally, that means Jesus was leading the way. So Jesus was walking ahead of them is Jesus was leading the way. And I hope with a literal translation like that, you get a better idea of what's actually happening happening here. It wasn't that he was walking at a faster pace and he just got ahead of them. It wasn't that that he just started out before they did or something like that. He was actually leading the way. And they were following him. And what we're seeing here is a graphic picture of the order of things between a master and his disciples. And that's literally what's going on, is that he's leading the way. Well, where is he leading the way to? To Jerusalem. Where else is he leading the way to? To his death. To the sacrifice that he's about to make. To being arrested by 
the Romans, to all of these things that are about to take place, His future, His purpose, what God's will and what God's plan, the Father's plan was for His life. That's what He's leading the way into. And so they're watching that. I mean, they're not ignorant as to where He's going. He told them where He was going. So I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested. And then I'm going to be crucified. And then after a few days, I'm going to raise from the dead. He told them what was about to happen. And some of it they were able to hear, some of it they were able to understand, and some of it they weren't able to understand. They weren't able to, to comprehend it or able to take it into their minds. And so they heard some of it and some of it they didn't. But they knew something, they knew this. They knew that there was danger ahead. They knew that. They knew that the authorities were out to get Jesus. And they also knew that they were attached to Jesus as his disciples. And so they were guilty by association. And so as you're reading this and you say, okay, well, Jesus is leading the way. Leading the way where? Well, leading the way to arrest. Leading the way to punishment. Leading the way to everything that was about to take place in Jerusalem, at least from their perspective. And so that's what they were seeing and that's who they were following. And there's kind of a couple of different ways you can see Jesus here. Uh, one is there's the heroic Jesus in that he has a resolve, he has a certain strength of will that we see taking place here. And, and that is the heroic Jesus, that he knows what's about to happen to him, but he's going anyway. And so as they're watching him and he's leading them, he's giving them an example, he's showing the way, they can see that. They can see that this is the heroic Christ. This is the one who, he has such a strength of will, he even knows what's about to happen to him, and he's just going steadfastly toward it. He's just going to go do it. Regardless. Well, what's the circumstance? Regardless of the circumstance. What are the details going to look like? Nobody knows what the details are going to look like. They just know what's about to happen in general terms. And so Jesus understanding what's about to happen, Jesus telling them what was about to happen, Jesus knowing that there was death waiting for him, just set his face toward Jerusalem and went on his way. And so they saw that. And that's an example. That was an example to them. And that was the example that, that ten out of 12 of these guys were going to follow in their lifetime. They were going to follow him down the same road in one way or another. That they were going to walk to their deaths in one way or another at the hands of somebody else because of their faith. And so they were learning their lesson. And they were seeing that happening. And so as he was leading the way, the master, the disciple, we understand that this strength of will was something that they needed to see, they needed to, to understand, they needed to experience firsthand if they were going to follow in those footsteps. And so that's what they were doing. Now he, he mentions, the gospel writer mentions here, the twelve. And it says that the twelve, the disciples, were filled with awe. And because he mentions the twelve specifically, it implies that there were others there with him too. 
Because he mentions the twelve who are the disciples, but then he says the people. And so it implies that there's this group of people that's following after Jesus. Well, who else followed after Jesus? Who do you know? What other groups that were identified in the Bible? Hmm? Well, there were the core, which were part of the twelve. Oh, the poor, sure. Okay, good. All right, so if somebody look at uh, Luke 10.1 and somebody look at Luke 8.1, there's a couple of different groups that are mentioned here. The poor, and Jesus is really, really interesting about this, and I use this line all the time, uh, the poor you will always have among you. And, and that's something that as a church, when we're first starting out, all right, as, a, as a new plant here on Westcott Street, we had our share of the poor. In fact, we had more than our share of the poor. And the reason I bring that up is because we were trying to do something here and we needed a certain amount of money to pay our rent, right? We had a certain amount of money to, to pay for different things that were coming up, different expenses. And so, uh, you know, a lot of us were young. A lot of people that were in the church were young and they were just starting their jobs. Some of them weren't working at all. And we were just trying to make ends meet. And I remember sitting around thinking, it's like, you know, because I've talked to pastors and they got families in their churches, right? And like established people. And so they had like money. And we were scraping a little bit. We were trying to get by. And I used to always say to people, like, well, what do you do? They're like, well, the poor will always be among us. And that's important for us to not only recognize that, but to accept that as part of our identity is that the poor will always be among us. Who are the poor? They're the needy. They're the needy. They're the people that aren't going to be able to really help you out. Right? <laughs> They've come for help. And that's part of the identity that Jesus gives us is that there will always be people that need help There'll always be people that are needy. There'll always be people that we can extend to. And and to understand that, receive that, accept that, find peace in that, find grace in that. And let the love of Jesus flow to that. All right, so who's got uh, Luke 10 one? All right, so there were 70 or 72, depending on what version you have of your Bible, in Luke 10, 1. So there were, that was a group of people, right? That was specifically that Jesus had commissioned, he had appointed. And then they would go, they were like the advance team. They would go into places where he was heading. And they'd do evangelism and deliverance and healing. And they were specifically empowered to do certain things. By him. So the 70 or 72. That was in addition to the 12. And then uh, Luke 8, 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. Okay. Does it say anything else there? Uh, and 2 says, And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits of Jesus, Mary called Magdalene, to whom seven demons had come out, and this is Joanna, the wife of Jesus, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others, even when we're helping to support them out of their own 
All right. So you had the 12 that are mentioned there, and then this other group, and there's this group of women that had been delivered and that God had done miraculous works in that had been healed. And there were, the Bible says there are many of them and that they traveled with them in order to support them. And so you had this group of supporters who had received a ministry from him and who had been set free by him. You had the 72 that he appointed. You had the 12. And so there's these groups of people. And there are probably others. You know, and like Kim said, generally the poor was always among them. And so you, you could say, okay, well, there's that group. And then whoever else were following him around. So they, all these people were following around. And so we get this specific, we get this specific breakdown of how they were reacting to Jesus when he was on his way to Jerusalem, which I think is awesome. Because you've got different reactions going on here. You've got Jesus who's reacting. He's steadfast. He's, he's made up his mind. He's ready to go. He's got his face set toward Jerusalem. He's out front. He's leading the way. He's on a mission. Right? So you got Jesus. Then you got the 12 disciples, as it says here. It says they were filled with awe. And that word awe is kind of an interesting word. Uh, because that that whole idea of being filled with awe is that, I mean, that they were just amazed. They were astonished. At what? At his courage. Because they knew what was waiting for him. They were amazed. They were astonished uh, at uh, just how intrepid he he was as he just went about the business of the father calling him. And so that was their demeanor toward him. That was their demeanor toward what was about to happen. I mean, you think about his selflessness. You think about uh, how sacrificial it was, what he was doing. All of these things, and the twelve could see that. And, and, and more than any of the other groups that followed him, or any other groups that were with him in this moment, the twelve knew him the best. They knew him the best. And so they were watching that steadfastness. They were watching him as he was heading into whatever God had, what the Father had for him. And they stood in awe and astonishment and amazement at what was going on with him. Okay, so this other group, the people, who were made up of the people we just said. You got the 72 in there probably. You got the women that were uh, that had been delivered and that were supporting his ministry and all this stuff. They were in that group. So all these people were in that group. And the Bible says that they, that they were overwhelmed with fear. And that was their reaction. So you had Jesus steadfast on a mission. You got the disciples amazed at what they're watching as Jesus is leading the way. And then you've got the rest of the people who, again, were moving outward away from Jesus here. These people that didn't have as, as close a relationship with him. They didn't understand him as well as the twelve did. And, and as you're moving away from that, the Bible tells us that they were overwhelmed with fear. Why? Well, it could have been for Jesus. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. They're overwhelmed with fear for Jesus. Because they know there's a bounty on him. They know there's a reward for information leading to his capture. They know that the most powerful people of their day among their culture were after him. They hated him and they wanted him dead. They knew all those things. And they knew that he was heading right into their lair. That's where he was going. 
And so you could say, give them the benefit of the doubt, say, okay, well, they were afraid for him. Alright, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But I'm also gonna add this, is that if they're afraid for him, who else are they afraid for? Themselves, that's right. That's absolutely correct. Because they're associated with him. They're attached to him. And if they're afraid for him, well, whatever's about to happen to him is kind of likely, because they've been identified with him, that same fate was waiting for them. And so they were overwhelmed with fear. We'll say, just for the sake of argument for Jesus, because they cared about him or they wouldn't be following him. But let's not... Let's let's not be mistaken that they were afraid for their own safety, for themselves. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. All I'm saying is is that it's interesting how these groups, these three different groups are are described. I mean, Jesus is his own self, but how you go from, you got closest to the center is Jesus. And he's just steadfast on a mission. But as he's steadfast on a mission, he's modeling that for others to see. And so the 12 who are going to need to know that, 10 of them are going to need to know this. Well, 11. They're going to need to know that. They need to know what it is to get that mission, to understand what it is. Not my will, but the Father's be done. They're going to have to understand that because their lives are going to require them and their death is going to require them to understand what that means. And so they're watching him in awe. They're watching him in amazement because they're seeing him selfless, sacrificial. They're seeing him going with courage to whatever the Father has for him. But then they got the rest of everybody else. And these are people that that God's used. I mean, 72, there was people going into towns before he would go. They're the people that were doing signs, wonders, miracles in the name of Jesus. There are people that were delivering people, people that were healing people. There are people that were, were preaching and teaching ahead of him. So these are people being used. You got the other group of people. I mean, they were, they've all received miraculous deliverance, power, healing, all these things that, that had led them to even follow after him and take care and, and to support him by their own means. So they were sacrificing so that he could go about and do the work that God called him to do. So they really believed in what he was doing. So you got this, these groups that are sacrificing on their own means. This other group that's going out and they're just doing ministry. And God has empowered them and is using them in ministry. So these aren't strangers necessarily. But the Bible says that they're filled with and overwhelmed with fear. And the only thing I get from that and really what, what that speaks to me, it talks about us. And it talks about what the, the distance between us and Jesus. And the closer we are to Him, and the closer our lives are to Him, the less we're going to be overwhelmed with fear. And I, and I just I believe that. I believe fear is a product of, of stepping away from the love of the Father. And the Bible talks about that. It says that, that, that the Father and His love, I mean, that's how fear is cast out. And so if we're going to experience that, if we're going to know that, what, what it means that, 
to, to, to live in that love, if we're going to know what it means to live in that presence of the Father, then we're going to have to be close to Jesus because that's where He lives. And so living close to Him, being close to Him, is that place where we can stand in awe and we can stand in amazement, but we don't have to be overwhelmed with fear. Because we may not... We may not be there yet. We may not look at that and say, well, I can definitely march toward my fate just like Jesus was doing. Because I don't know the disciples could have said that right then. I don't think those guys, I mean, all of them could have said that. And it would, it would come years later for most of them that they would have to face this kind of a fate, this kind of a purpose, this kind of a plan in their lives that the Father had for them. But they probably weren't ready that day. But they could at least stand in awe of it. And they could at least stand in amazement of it. They could at least learn from it. They could see it for what it was. And they could grow into it. It's something that would be a living lesson for them. That would continue on. You know what's hard to learn a living lesson is when you're overwhelmed with fear. Being overwhelmed with fear puts us in a position where we're kind of at that, that base level of human existence. Where we're living afraid. And when you live afraid, you're just, you're just kind of making those bad decisions. And they are bad decisions. So I'm going to try to teach my kids, if you panic, you die. There ain't no panic. There ain't no panic. All right, we, we can't live like that. We weren't made for it. And, and, I mean, I know there's all kinds of studies that talk about the, the physiological damage of living anxiety and fear. You're just not made for it. That, that we have certain reactions that are natural in our bodies when we're faced with certain situations. Yeah, I get that. But you can't live like that. I mean, that might be a moment, but that's not a way of life. And, you know, you're driving up on a deer that's in the middle of the road at night and it freezes in your headlights. Well, that's a reaction. That's a moment. I mean, if you come back the next day, the deer's not still frozen in the headlights, all right? It's not sitting in the middle of the road. But it has a moment and then it moves on. Well, if a base animal can figure that out, and, and that's kind of how God made things, as human beings, we're, we're thinking, and, and we don't have to live like that. Especially living in perpetual fear like some people do. And allowing our minds to keep us in that kind of a prison. Allowing our minds to keep us in that kind of a state. It makes you old way too soon. And it begins to destroy your body from the inside out. There's nothing good that comes of that. And so as this crowd and this group, because they're a little bit further away, right? They're a little bit further away from Jesus. Not really, you know, up, up close as the twelve. I mean, there they were overwhelmed with fear for Him and for themselves. Because they knew what was waiting for them. It wasn't a mystery. It wasn't a mystery that, that the chief priests were out to get Him. It wasn't a mystery that the authorities were out to get Him. That was not a mystery. They knew that. And they knew what they did with people like him. That wasn't a mystery either. And it wasn't like it is, you know, where 
These days you get arrested and you don't know what's going to happen. They knew what was going to happen. Once you got arrested, you were done. You know, their court system was not like our court system. Their justice system was not like our justice system. They knew what was going to happen. And so they either were going to make a decision that was going to be a faith decision and a trust decision. They were going to look at the example of Jesus and they were going to follow after that example or they were going to let fear overwhelm them and they were going to live in that fear and they were going to live in that anxiety. It's your choice. It's your choice. To me, the easiest way is to just stay close to Jesus and just really, really cling to Him. Because it's in His presence that there's peace. It's in His presence that there's rest. It's in His presence that there's courage. It's in His presence that there's bravery to face whatever it is that's in front of us. Because He's modeling it all day. And so there were certain things on this that were, that I really felt like got highlighted to me. And Jesus is showing the way. He's the forerunner. Now the Bible talks about Him being the firstborn among many brethren. Well, we're the brethren. Male or female. Alright? We're the brethren. If there can be a movie out called The Woman King, we're all the brethren. Okay? Alright. So, we're the brethren. So he's the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, he is the template. We're looking at him. He's the model. And so we see him moving forward in, in particularly the Father's will. We see him moving forward in obedience to what the Father has for him. We see him moving forward in, in just following after his purpose, following after the plan that's been laid before him. And so he's become that firstborn. And he's setting that example for us to follow him. And we're going to live our lives in fear of what God has for us, or we're going to embrace it. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian your whole life, you haven't been a Christian your whole life, it doesn't matter. none of that matters. It's right. You're going to embrace what the Father has for you. And I don't know what the Father has for you. I don't. I don't don't entirely know what the Father has for me. I just have to make decisions before I go do things. Or I make decisions before I make certain other decisions that this is what's going to happen. And I'm going to follow after this. And, And it's kind of funny because all my life people have been saying, you know, like, um, I remember before I went skydiving. I was talking to somebody before I went skydiving. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to really love this. Oh, yeah, you'll see. Yeah, maybe. And I know that. And I was, I was, totally, I was totally prepared. Like if I, I showed up there and I got really scared, I mean, I just back out, right? But I really thought I was going to love it. And I told people that and they just all laughed at me like, oh, sure. You know, like, oh, you're just going to do that. And I did. I loved it. But I knew I was going to love it. There was something about it that was super attractive to me. And there, there's something about just hurtling yourself toward the ground from like 10,000 feet or something. 
And it was just really exciting, and I love that kind of stuff. Anyway, so, but but it's just one of those things, like, well, you know how you react. So when I first started working on the ambulance, I was like, yeah, I think I, I'm really cut out for this. Well, you'll see the first time this happens. Like, I guess so. And the first time that happened, I saw, and it was okay. I really liked it. And, oh, well, then you're going to get a gory accident. Well, we got gory accidents, and it was okay. Or you're going to see your first dead person. I saw my first dead person. It was all right. And it was going to be this or it was going to be that. Whatever whatever other hurdle there was going to be, people would be like, well, you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. It's like, no, I, I kind of do know. And it was all right. And, and I, I think if we're honest enough with ourselves, we kind of know, right? I think. Because some people are cut out for certain things. Other people aren't cut out for certain things. And not once ever on an ambulance, if I had somebody and, and they were like riding along with us or they were helping or they were one of the attendants or something like that, and we got to a scene and it was particularly gory and they had to turn around and walk back, I never once said a word to anybody. It didn't bother me one bit. And I understood completely 100% why that could happen and how that could happen. It didn't bother me one bit. Never brought it up. Don't care. All right? It's just, we need to know who we are. You need to know who you are, I need to know who I am. Now, don't ask me to kill a spider because I hate that. <laughs> and I'm afraid of them. But I know that. And you might think that's silly because you don't have afraid of spiders, right? And you just squash them and that's it. You kill them with your hand. <laughs> but some people do that. Sorry. It's not me. Well, it's like there's just certain things, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to say, and I, and I guess I, I want to bring up a negative because it's not everything. It's like there's just certain things. It's like I know where I'm at. I know who I am. And it doesn't mean that if, if, if I got a spider coming at me, like, you know, coming at me, you're going to eat me or something, I'm not going to kill it. I'm going to kill it. But it's not my preference. If I see one on the floor, I'll ask somebody else to kill it. <laughs> I don't like it. So you got to know that, though, in a sense. You, you didn't seem to know who you are. And in part of the, the process of discipleship, and it always has been and always will be, is that there's two big questions in discipleship, and they both have to be answered. The first question is, who is Jesus? And, you, and you, you get to know that by getting close to him. And the second question is, who am I? You have to answer that question. And the, the way you, you get to know the answer to that question is to get close to Jesus. Both those questions are answered in his presence. I mean, in reality. You can pretend you're somebody else. You can tell people you're somebody else. But the fact of the matter is, if you really want to know who you are, it's in His presence that you find that out. And so those two huge questions, they're the two big questions of discipleship, who is Jesus, who am I? They get answered in His presence. And so the, the disciples, the twelve, they were in that process. And they'd been in that process a little longer than some of the others that were with them. And they were a little closer to Jesus and they had a little better answer to those questions than some of those other people that were around there. 
And so they could look at Jesus, they could see what he's doing, the resolution that he had. They could see just, just how fearless he was moving forward, how selfless, how, how, how sacrificial, the courage that he was displaying. They could see it, and they could be in awe of that. They could be astonished by that. It's like, that's awesome. That is awesome. They could appreciate it because they had a better idea about who they were and they had a really good idea about who he was. It was the other people that they were looking around at other stuff. They were looking around at the Romans and they were looking around at the chief priests and they were looking around at the authorities and they were looking around at the people in Jerusalem that were going to try to kill him and probably them too. That's what they were looking at. Who were the disciples looking at? Jesus. Who was Jesus looking at? The Father. You see, the focus was there. But the people didn't have it. They were just afraid. They were overcome with fear. You know what? They were all on the same road, right? This is the part that really struck me as I read this. They were all on the same road. All of them. However many of them there were. It was the same road. So, in other words, they were all together. All together. And where were they heading? Jerusalem. So they all had the same destination. See, that's awesome, right? So, they're together. They're all on the same road. They all have the same destination. Heading to the same place. And they were there at the same time. And so, so we got the same road, same destination, and same time. It's Passover time. That's where they're heading to Jerusalem. And so you would think if circumstance was the key issue here, they'd all feel the same way about it, but they don't. Just because they're on the same road doesn't mean they're going to feel the same way about it. Just because they have the same destination doesn't mean they're going to feel the same way about it. And just because they're in the same road, going to the same destination at the same time, doesn't mean that they're going to feel the same about it. It's up to the individual how you're going to feel about it. Not only were they on the same road, going to the same destination at the same time, they were in the same circumstance. Say, well, circumstances make a difference. They had the same circumstance. What was their circumstance? They were under threat. It already been prophesied, the Old Testament, and even through the words of Jesus, that the passion was coming. His death was coming. His arrest was coming. They knew that. And so all of them, each of these, I mean, Jesus knew that, the twelve knew that, and all of the others knew that. They all are in the same circumstance. Same road, same destination, same time, same circumstance. But different reaction. Different reaction. Different perspective. Different way of seeing things. Different emotional responses taking place here, which I think is key in our understanding of what we see here. Because you got, as I said, Jesus steadfast. You got the twelve amazed, and you've got the rest of them afraid. Afraid. And no judgment. And I'm not and I'm not teaching this 
to make anybody feel badly about anything. I'm teaching this so that we can find a way to get closer to Jesus. That's what I'm encouraging toward. Just to get closer to Jesus. Because you've been in this situation. You've been in this circumstance. You've been on this road before in your life where you've seen yourself or maybe others in the same exact circumstance with different reactions taking place. You've seen it. And you know what that looks like. And if you've been on the wrong side of that, it's like, well, I don't want to live afraid. Do you? No. 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 You don't have to go too far back to think of being under threat, do you? Most of you. You don't have to go back too far to to understand what this is talking about. You know, there's some people in here, we've all kind of sat overnight and under lock and key on the border of a nasty country. All right? Yeah, we'll let you out in the morning. Thanks. There's some people in here that were met in a bus. We got off a bus after praying with a couple of kids that were Muslims to know Jesus and were met by guys in long uh, leather coats with compact uh, automatic weapons underneath their coats that escorted us out of the country. Some of you were there. And you get in a car, it's time to go. Next thing we knew, we ended up in Tunisia. Because Algeria had had enough <laughs> of us. Hmm. And I know I, I tell those stories every now and then. They're just reminders. That we live in a place, in a world that Some people are really excited about Jesus and some people aren't. And opportunities present themselves and we take those opportunities and we need to make our decisions ahead of time as to what that's going to look like. Now, for most of us, those kind of decisions have to do with reputation, have to do with people liking us or not liking us, having to do with people understanding us, not understanding us, having to do with people saying they're our friends, not saying they're our friends. Uh, Some of those might have professional ramifications for us. I don't know. I can't answer all those questions. But we make our decisions ahead of time. And the way those decisions are appropriately made is as close to Jesus as we can possibly get. So I'll take a few moments and I'll just allow uh, his word to kind of just sink in a little bit with us, to settle in to our spirit. You don't need to identify what group you're part of here. Because I think sometimes we find ourselves in one group and then in another as we drift in and out of our intimacy with Christ. But I just think that wherever we are tonight, maybe there's a challenge in this. 
And I don't know what the days ahead hold for us, for you. I don't know where he might lead you. I mean, years ago, I, I never thought that people would end up from, you know, heading to Pakistan or places like that, but they did. You know, people ended up in closed countries. They're close to the gospel, but they did. They are. And it's, it's through making these decisions in the presence of Jesus that allows for those kind of decisions to be made. Let's just take a moment. Father, I pray that your word would just really sink into our spirit tonight. Into the deep places. And I thank you that there is a love and a grace and a mercy that is found as close to Jesus as we can get. And it's in that place, in that 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 intimacy with Him that we find find out who He is and who we are. And so I just ask that we would draw close to You tonight. Closer. Closer. And closer. Because Jesus, I thank You that You have a place of peace and rest for us. You have a place of joy for us. You have a place of purpose. You have a place of fulfillment. And that these disciples would ultimately follow you directly down this road. They see. They see what it looks like. They see what that kind of courage looks like. They see what that kind of sacrifice looks like. They see it. They're in awe of it. And they ultimately they'd follow you down that road. So thank you for that example. It didn't end with them. But an example that continues to inspire. That continues to encourage call that has never stopped. A family that continues to grow and more and more of your brothers that are stepping up to go about the work of the Father in the world that we live in. And so God, tonight I thank you for your call. I thank you for your courage. And I thank you for the life that only you can give. I pray for those that are afraid, living in fear tonight, that your perfect love can find that freedom and that that perfect love would cast out that fear tonight. I pray you fill them with so much of the Father's love, so much of His acceptance, so much of His life that that fear would have to go in Jesus' name. Just go. I pray for those who are battling anxiety tonight. I just pray victory in the name of Jesus. We don't have to live that way. 
And I pray the peace of God that passes all understanding to just flood over hearts and spirits and lives tonight and set a guard around hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Anxiety, go. Fear, go. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I pray we learn to live in peace. And we learn to rest in you. Give you thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF and Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community dad. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.